flowers connect humans with nature and heighten our awareness of the seasons. They root us to our place on the planet. Our senses see, smell, touch, and even hear and taste botanical beauty. I believe this is a truth understood by all humans. How can a slow flowers movement help us to regain the true meaning of love for one another and for nature in the flowers that we use to commemorate special occasions with? And how has our collective loss of knowledge on seasonality helped to drive agrobiodiversity loss in the types of crops, plants, and flowers that we grow? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons and Buffy, which makes bedding that's earth-friendly and cruelty-free. Its newest comforter is called The Breeze, made 100% from eucalyptus fiber to regulate temperature and keep us cool and comfortable all night long. You can actually try it out in your own bed for free, and if you don't love it, you can return it at no cost. Visit Buffy.co to learn more and use the discount code GREENDREAMER for $20 off. That's B-U-F-F-Y C-O and GREENDREAMER for $20 off. For now, to our conversation with Deborah Prinzing, a Seattle-based writer, speaker, leading advocate for American-grown flowers, and producer of slowflowers.com. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I have to think back and and be honest to say my parents were not gardeners or are not gardeners. At the same time, they always made it a priority for my brothers and me to experience the vast beauty of nature, especially as kids growing up in the 60s and 70s. We went to national parks all over the country. We always found a a way to spend time at the ocean on both coasts. Road trips to epic monuments and historic places were really the backdrop of my childhood. So I had this awe for nature. And from that, I think living in the Pacific Northwest almost all the years since I was a teenager, really impacted my love and connection to nature. Pacific Northwest, I'm in Seattle, but the whole region is passionate about our mountains and our waterways. I'm looking at Puget Sound and the Olympic Mountain Range right now from my wow. desk. It's just a peekaboo view, but that's what I, <laughs> that's what I rest my eyes on every day. And then to make it closer to home, you know, it's, it's, I'm a gardener and my love of gardening began with a college roommate who, you know, was obsessed with houseplants and filled our apartment back in the eighties with, uh, with plants. And she and another early colleague in the professional life of, uh, as a writer, they both, uh, were influences and mentors to me as a young gardener. And I think just bottom line, when you grow and tend to plants in your own garden, be it a backyard or a patio, I feel that that gives you a strong appreciation and connection to nature, Mm. even though it's maybe not in the wild, it's kind of in a cultivated controlled environment. It still forces us to observe what happens in the life of a plant. Mm. Well, you've been named an impassioned advocate for a more sustainable flower industry. What was it that really sparked this deep sense of purpose for you to not just appreciate the process of gardening and the act of gardening, but to also take this a step further to look at the ways that we're doing things in the industry and to help improve that. I like to say I fell down the rabbit hole of flowers and never climbed out. And uh, (laughs) before I 
turned all of my energy and passion toward growing flowers and designing with flowers, which some people say the floral industry, I I really hate that term industry. So I say the floral marketplace. Mm. I was a a very active home and garden journalist. And I was in the consumer space. I wrote for the LA Times, Sunset Magazine, Better Homes and Gardens, all the kind of popular channels to convey gardening information. And so I really thought I knew everything there was to know about flowers. And I certainly, uh, I was awakened in my lack of knowledge when I started meeting flower farmers, especially back, this is about 2006, I started meeting some micro farmers in my area in Western Washington and was fascinated by their story. And those farmers, you know, they were selling at farmer's markets and maybe to local grocery stores on a small scale, but they're the ones who really alerted me to this reality that 80% of cut flowers sold in the United States are imported. And that simply didn't make sense to me. I knew my flowers were growing just fine in my backyard. So why would they have to make this massive, massive trip or this epic trip of traveling to me on a jumbo jet, which used a lot of jet fuel. And then maybe they were driven across the country on a truck using more fuel. And at the same time, it's a perishable product that some people would argue are is a luxury product. It just seemed like a huge waste of resources. So anyway, that situation just made me crazy. And I began to contemplate how I could influence a change in the marketplace as a writer and speaker and influence consumers and professionals to, to think more s- intentionally about their consumption of flowers and be more conscious about their choices. Mm. Well, the unsustainability of our current flower marketplace, I don't think is really well understood, especially by people who maybe purchase flowers on a regular basis. And I think because many people have become so disconnected from nature's and the origins of our food and products, it's become almost the norm to perceive the sheer existence of nature close to us as a pleasurable thing for us. So, you know, the presence of plants and seeing life around us makes us happy. The presence of bouquets of flowers in our homes also makes us happy. But beyond appreciating flowers as a way of loving nature, we fail to dig deeper to see how our floral purchases actually impact the real natural world out there that we want to be loving. So can you give us a picture of what our current floral marketplace looks like today in terms of how they're grown, where they're grown, and the levels of consumption of flowers that we have? Yeah, that's a huge question. I have an infographic that I often share with my members and their customers about the, those share numbers. And um I I can provide that for you if you want to share that link with people. Yeah, we can link to that in the show notes. But it basically it's it's called Where Do Your Flowers Come From? And that really, I'm using like USDA and US Department of Commerce and Society of American Florists data. I tried to crunch it all into this easily to digest document and break down country by country where flowers come from. So the majority of flowers coming into the US, and I mentioned that 80%, are being grown in Colombia and Ecuador. And they're obviously the climate in those countries is more friendly to growing flowers, say, than Michigan or Maine. (laughs) But because it's close to the equator, they pretty much can produce flowers year round. But that requires enormous transportation footprint. And frankly, the practices are different by farms that aren't, you know, being regulated by the EPA or by OSHA or by, you know, the labor standards set out, you know, in in our country. So there, it's not an apples to apples product. And we've got flowers coming into the U.S. 
pretty much duty-free because of our trade legislation. And there's not a level playing field for local farmers to have any kind of mitigation or offset to that that flood of, of imports. Our floral industry is also pretty ungreen, to be honest with you. Uh, there's so much packaging and huge use of plastics and chemicals that it's sort of the opposite of nature, to be honest with you. It's really discouraging. There are lots of people uh, in my community, in the Soul Flowers community, who are working very hard to to change what have been conventional practices in the mainstream floral industry and, and marketplace. So um, I, I'm very excited about and encouraged by those changes and by those not only people making changes, but sharing their knowledge so they can encourage others to make those changes. In the food industry, there's a lot of monocropping, which means they grow the exact same crop on acres of land, and that really degrades the soil, contributes to biodiversity loss, and all in all is just not natural to wild ecosystems. So is this the same way in the floral marketplace in that a lot of flowers are grown also in monocultures, or what does that picture look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there is sort of what I call the factory farm, both in the U.S. and in Holland and South America. And these are com- big commercial enterprises that are cranking out crops of flowers almost on a year-round basis. I just listened to your episode with the gentleman from the Real Organics Project, mm-hmm. and so much of what he was saying about hydroponics in food is completely happening in flowers. So I found that really interesting that, you know, you might have acres of greenhouses filled with uh, roses that are basically st- standardized, uniform, <laughs> you know, have had the fragrance spread out of them. And that's what people think of roses now. They think it comes in a bunch of dozen, you know, dozen stems, completely uniform, stiff red. Uh, I call them softball on a stick shaped heads. And it's so far away from the roses that I grow in my garden and that these, these sort of boutique flower farm, tiny flower farms all around the country are growing to sell to the floral industry or to the florists or to people getting married. And it's, it's just like a completely different world. That monocrop scenario is beginning to change because of basically aesthetic preferences among florists who are looking for more natural, ephemeral, wild elements to use in their designs. So some of it is interesting Interesting that it's being changed by aesthetic reasons, which is, I, I couldn't be happier to see that happen. Mm. Do you feel like the Florists who are changing are more so small scale florists and the large corporate run ones are still going by, you know, whatever may be most efficient or can turn out the most quantity of flowers so that they can sell them. Absolutely. I mean, if you, well, two days ago, FTD declared bankruptcy or announced that they're declaring bankruptcy. So it's kind of unfair to pick on them, but that's a big, that's a big machine. And I had, I knew that they had one page on their website that was focused on domestic U.S. grown flowers. But you have to click about 16 times to find that, and it's never highlighted on their homepage. It's sort of a a nod to, I don't know, a small percentage of customers who are asking for that. And the choices being offered were pretty limited, like Gerbera daisies and sunflowers, basically. But it wasn't a priority. And the fact that they're filing for bankruptcy, I like to, I mean, I think, and perhaps is because of changing tastes of consumers and florists. The thing that's in the, working to the advantage of these smaller scale, sustainable flower farmers and 
floral designers is that social media has completely been flooded with these romantic, beautiful photos of farmer flores and their unique crops. And there's a lot of education going on about what can be grown in your own community, what you can source from from a a micro farmer. So social media has really been powerful. And also just the media, the media is in love with farmers. And that really works to the advantage. And I say that to my members all the time, tell your story invite people to your farm, let them experience what a farm is where flowers are grown. And that kind of one customer at a time is going to be how things get changed. Mm, That's beautiful. Well, if we look back at our history, what do you see as the intended role of gardening and the meaning of gifting or surrounding ourselves with flowers and botanicals? You know, that's a really great question because it spans millennium, (laughs) millennia. A flower's role, you know, in in the ecosystem, just like to be purely basic, is is that it provides habitat, nectar, pollen, seeds. It's integrated in just the life cycle of wherever it's growing. And I have a friend who wrote a book called Vegetables Love Flowers. And her point was, if you want to have a, a very successful vegetable garden, you better grow at least, you know, a quarter of your real estate of your tiny patch of earth with flowers because flowers provide the pollinators that you need to produce viable vegetables. So I think I think that that had been forgotten for a long time. I love that it's coming back. And it, I think it's interesting after, I like to say that after 9-11, there was this, in the gardening world at least, there was this huge rejection of ornamental gardening. And it was all about food, food security, growing your own food. And like you were completely irresponsible if you were not growing vegetables. And if you were just growing flowers, that was somehow rejected. The pendulum started swinging back, I think, when food growers realized how important insects and pollinators are to their success. And so flowers became kind of acceptable, if only to provide a nectar source. And now, thankfully, we're seeing that this renewed love of flowers for the the more emotional and sensory benefits that they provide. And this is what the next sort of reason I would like to address in terms of flower role is this the role of a flower in the life of humans. And it could be to commemorate, to console, to celebrate for ritual and ceremony, for tradition. In every culture on the planet, there's a role for flowers and it's been honored and celebrated, but as I said, for millennia. And so the idea of beauty is, it's it's fleeting, but it's, I think, one of the most powerful things in our lives. Mm. So basically food, it's seen as the top priority because it's a necessity, whereas mm-hmm. flowers are perceived to be decorative and sometimes mm-hmm. a luxury, like you mentioned. So mm-hmm. people may not see the importance of that. But you're saying that, you know, growing flowers is actually necessary to our entire food industry as well. Absolutely. And, you know, I feel like, you know, I often get the comment from people, well, why should I care how my flowers are grown? I'm not eating them. And, you know, there, of course, are edible flowers, and there's kind of a renaissance going on with edible flowers in the culinary world, which is wonderful. Because if you want edible flowers, then you want organically grown flowers, which completely runs counter to that comment about I don't eat them. But why wouldn't you want your flowers to be grown in a sustainable way to ensure that the humans who are growing those flowers or the land on which those flowers are grown or the the streams and waterways that the runoff from those farms receives or the animals that are in and around that farm are all safe and not being 
treated with toxic chemicals. And so, you know, it, it takes another conversation or another level of dialogue to get people to think a little bit more carefully about why they should care, where those flowers come from, who grew them, and what practices were used to grow them. Mm. Well, like you mentioned today, I believe you said 80% of our flowers are imported from Colombia. Mm-hmm. Well, from um, Colombia is probably one of the major sources, but just import it in maybe, general. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think happened throughout time to lead to this being such a large industry that has to be imported? And that's allowed flowers, which at the core of it is intended to symbolize and commemorate love, to have become something that's maybe more superficial and a facade for its meaning. So what drove the evolution of the floral marketplace to lead to its unsustainability today? Mm-hmm. Up until about the 1980s, most of the flowers sold in the United States were grown by U.S. farms. And most of those farms were um, serving their region. They weren't national. They were maybe the Midwest rose grower or the Eastern Seaboard rose grower or the lily grower in Oregon. You know, they were kind of super regional. And a lot of that had to do with just lack of sophistication in like transportation. Plus it's a perishable product, so it is hard to transport. Then we had the so-called war on drugs. And I like to, I'm not picking just on the Reagan administration because it really was, both parties were responsible for this, this occurrence. But in the early eighties, there was an act called the Andean Trade Preference Agreement. And this was Congress's attempt to incentivize South American countries, specifically Colombia. And now it's, of course, this act also encompasses Ecuador to grow a crop other than coca. And so tariffs were lifted and there were a lot of incentives given to start a flower cut flower industry in Colombia. At the time, there literally was no offset or thought about how this would damage the domestic flower farming world. But that's that's what started this gradual slippery slope that had got us to where we are today. So it was about 20% in imports, 20% imports, 80% domestic at the time and now that's flipped. Mm-hmm. So that continues on today. And I think the other things that really hurt the U.S. flower farming world, uh, especially for greenhouse growers, was the energy crisis of the same period or a little bit earlier. Colorado used to be the single largest producer of carnations in the country. All those carnations were grown under greenhouses. All those greenhouses had to be heated. And when energy uh, prices and fuel prices spiked, it really put those farms out of business. And now, there are very few carnations grown in the U.S. There's a little bit of a renaissance going on about, among the farmer florists, the, the small-scale growers who are kind of growing heirloom varieties, but all carnations are grown in South America. The same could be pretty much said for roses. Um, there's about seven commercial rose growers left in the U.S. At one point, there were probably over 100 in the state of California alone. But I think in general, the, the larger sh- thing that's happening is it's not just happening in the U.S., it's happening in other countries where their agriculture is outsourced. So you see it in Australia, you see it in throughout Europe, you see it all across the whole northern hemisphere just because it's not as, the, the temperatures are cooler, right? In Canada, for example. So whenever our agriculture is outsourced, flowers take a hit as well. And a lot of that has to do with lower labor costs, uh, less stringent environmental regulations, and this ability to to fly product anywhere on a jumbo jet. And so that's 
that's happening in the U.S., it's happening in Canada, and it's happening in a lot of other countries that are seeing their food outsourced in terms of production. The flowers are also outsourced. So how do we fix that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I do see that a lot of our lack of understanding about this has to do with our disconnection, uh, being disconnected from nature as humans, and also not understanding seasonality. So if I go to the grocery store and I see peonies in January, because I'm a gardener, I'll be I'll look at those peonies and know that they are not local because peonies simply don't grow in North America until May. It's just like genetically impossible. Uh, so I have to know that they're coming from Chile or something like that. But if I don't understand the seasons, then I don't think there's anything wrong with those beautiful peonies. And I'm sure they're beautiful, but I'm not questioning where they came from. And there is no enforcement of country of origin labeling going on in flowers anywhere in the country. So it's all farmers choosing to label their own product and the occasional grocery store or, or flower shop that's choosing to provide point of purchase labeling as a customer benefit. It's just not widespread. And, you know, I think also there's this artisan versus commodity mindset too, because flowers can't have kind of moved into that commodity world in meaning there are a lot of flowers and in only a few categories, you know, there's like 10 or 12 kind of common year round available flowers. And how sad is that when mm -hmm. we know that nature produces like this endless supply of, of beauty and inspiration. Uh, and that's really where like I'm focusing my energy is trying to support and encourage the people who are growing those diversified crops and seasonally res reflective crops. So do you feel like part of what is driving biodiversity loss in the floral marketplace and even in other sectors as well actually comes from people's disconnect from nature and people's lack of understanding of seasonality and what is actually naturally available? So when people think about flowers, there may be, you know, five to ten species of flowers that we have in mind. So when we go to marketplaces, these are the ones that people may be searching for instead of just getting whatever is there. So when they when people put demand on the same five to ten species of anything, farmers are then encouraged to grow those year round, even if that means needing to use more energy for greenhouses to be able to grow them year round or just mm -hmm. having more homogeneity on their farms. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think that's an excellent question. I, that is happening and that I, I kind of call it the dirty dozen, like this, you know, the carnations, the roses, the, the moms, the lilies, the alstroemeria, like there's just some basics that you see and you see them mainly in the mass market. And I just want to make another comment about availability and the, why consumers aren't seeing diversity of choice is the way people shop these days has changed dramatically. 50% of all flowers sold in the U.S. are sold through grocery store and mass market channels. Mm -hmm. So if that's the only place you're seeing flowers wrapped in cellophane, you know, kind of looking like they're her hermetically sealed and colors not known to nature, that's really sad. I don't want anyone to have that as their only choice. The good news is because of the proliferation of small-scale flower farmers just exploding. We just got the USDA floriculture census, and in the last five years, something like 16% growth of farms identifying themselves as growing flowers has taken place. And I know that number is much higher than what was reported to the USDA. But 
these are the farmers you see at your farmer's market. These are the people who are own your the CSA that you buy your, your, your veggie basket from who are now starting to grow flowers because they see it as a value-added crop, a way to diversify their farm, and a way to offer something that is you know delightful to their customers. That is happening, and that is also being driven by the wedding industry, to be perfectly honest, the biggest consumer of, of you know, high-end flowers is the wedding industry. And the designers and event planners and couples are seeing what's out there in the marketplace, mainly through social media, and saying, oh my gosh, I would love, um, brand- I just bought these, these from a farmer here in Seattle, I would love branches with with unripe blueberries and this beautiful oval blue green foliage in my centerpieces to add some wonderful reflection of the season at my ceremony and guess what now more farmers are are planting blueberries for for ornamentation and it's kind of back to that supply and demand when you have confidence that people will want a diversified product you're willing to invest in land and seed and bulbs and supplies to produce that product and meet that demand. Well, just like how there's the slow food movement, you're helping to pioneer the slow flowers movement to shed light on our urgent need to transform our current extractive practices in the flower marketplace. How are you going about shifting consumer awareness and perspectives on this? And what has been the most effective in driving change? Mm. Oh, that's such a great question. I mean, the mission of Slow Flowers is to inspire the floral industry and its consumers to embrace local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers. And our goals are kind of twofold. We have a consumer-oriented strategy and a a floral industry slash professional strategy. But our overall goal is to change the flower sourcing practices of consumers and professionals through education, outreach, storytelling that highlight the benefits of local seasonal and domestic flowers, and really to, pr- to build a movement that promotes the cultivation and sale of local seasonal and sustainable flowers. And I think the reason it's working is that we're nurturing authentic connections be- between consumers, farmers, and florists. There's a lot of people who have to come together to make this successful. So Slow Flowers, as a project that I've spearheaded, has a lot of content channels. We have a podcast. We have a uh, online journal, and we have a, a print version of that journal that's in the leading trade magazine in the floral industry called Florist Review. We have an online directory that is free for consumers to peruse and find farmers and florists they can buy flowers from directly who have signed a transparency pledge for their sourcing practices. So if a consumer goes to slowflowers.com and you know types in Indiana because that's where grandma lives and you want to find someone who's going to send India or deliver Indiana grown flowers to grandma, that member will pop up in your search by state, city, or zip code. And that member has taken a pledge to be honest and transparent about where those flowers come from. And then we have two other activities. One is a big campaign that happens the week leading up to July 4th called American Flowers Week. And it's a grassroots social media campaign that just encourages people, farmers, florists, and home gardeners like me to post photos of their flowers that are of the moment in season and use the hashtag American Flowers Week, trying to flood social media with images of flowers and the message that, hey, they grow here where I am. And then we have a conference called the Slow Flower Summit coming up in the middle of American Flowers Week that really brings together 
progressive, sustainably minded professional florists. With the numerous social and environmental issues that stem from people commodifying nature and aiming to maximize short-term profit at all costs, we're, we're at a point where I feel like the enormity of it all is leading some people to not even want to participate in the consumerist culture at all, even if it means to support better. So for example, there's also the slow fashion movement right now to improve the fashion industry to becoming one that truly values nature and the workers involved. But when people learn about all the issues that are there, increasingly people are swearing off buying clothes altogether. <laughs> right. So yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah. So I guess my question is, do you think that there is a possibility for us to have the floral marketplace proliferate, but in a way that really truly can support the regeneration of biodiversity and for the natural world to truly be sustainable? So is it possible for people to really enjoy flowers without contributing to any form of degradation? And if so, what does that vision look like to you? Mm -hmm. You're a green dreamer. I mean, that is a goal that I would dream about. First of all, I'm in the middle of this floral marketplace. I've chosen to change it from within rather than being, that rather than being an outsider taking pot shots at it, because I think most effective change is done by listening and understanding and having dialogue with people who you may or may not agree with. With to that effect, as a storyteller, one of the things that I do is rather than get up on my pulpit and try to browbeat people into not buying imports, imported flowers and to, you know, feel guilty about having to buy a white hydrangea in January for their bride who is insisting on carrying white hydrangeas down the aisle. That's not effective, making people feel guilty. What I find is effective is shining the light on positive stories about change agents who are growing beautiful seasonal flowers in a sustainable way. And enhancing their land rather than depleting their land and, you know, being engaged in their community. The more I tell positive stories, I feel like it's social engineering in my own little way of trying to demonstrate the successes and the reasons why people are aligning their brand with the slow flowers movement, because they are seeing it as, you know, more of a community-minded, mutually beneficial way of doing business. I don't want to be naive. Imports are never going to go away in the floral marketplace. Our, there's too much of a backbone of the floral marketplace that relies on imports. And Americans, frankly, want cheaper all the time, right? Mm. I, and I don't want to see the farmers that I love and support getting caught up in that price battle. They're never going to win the price battle with imports. But they are going to win on telling their stories, on having product that is ephemeral and fleeting and and so beautiful and fragile that it can't be shipped. So that's why those imported flowers, most most of these microfarms who are part of the slow flowers movement, they're not trying to grow the stuff that the South Americans are growing. They're trying to grow clematis and sweet peas and um, foxglove and all these romantic flowers that we all have a kind of a visceral reaction to because those flowers have to be cut today and handed to you tomorrow. Frankly, for people who are, like you said, in the slow fashion movement, just ready to give up and say, forget it, I'm not going to participate. That's okay. I would ask you to go buy one packet of seeds and plant flowers in your own garden. Mm. That is your way to protest the commercial commoditization of flowers. Just take ownership for your own flowers and put them in your, you know, grow them in your garden. It's, it will cost you $3 to do it. So, and that's what one packet of seeds costs. So I don't fault anybody for 
checking out of this this ridiculous global floral <laughs> marketplace. It is it it's just not going to change. So we have to make these small changes, one vase at a time, <laughs> one one garden at a time, one micro farm at a time, one tiny flower shop at a time. That's that's just the only way that we're going to see the needle shift and maybe have 75% imports versus 80% imports. Like that would be a massive change mm. to move the needle five points. This episode was brought to you by Buffy and its new comforter, The Breeze, which is hypoallergenic with no down, no polyester fill, but made entirely from eucalyptus fiber, which helps us to stay cozy without overheating. I'm actually trying it out right now. It is super soft, and personally, I do prefer natural fiber for things that come into contact with my skin. And plus, we do spend almost half of our lives in bed, so it is important what our bedding is made of, and this is definitely a winner for me. But you can see for yourself because you can try it for free and return it at no cost if you don't love it. For $20 off, visit Buffy.co and enter your discount code GREENDREAMER. That's B-U-F-F-Y dot C-O and GREENDREAMER for $20 off. For now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow? My favorite inspiration is a, a woman named Abra Lee. She has a website and a social media name of Conquer the Soil, C-O-N-Q-U-E-R, Conquer the Soil. Abra's a longtime horticulturist uh, from Atlanta, and she's now part of the Longwood Gardens Fellowship for 2019. But she, I love her because she shares her perspective in the garden and horticulture as a woman of color. Mm. And Abra is trying to reclaim gardening and horticulture for people of color. It's sort of somehow become this like white middle class, you know, exclusive place. And Abra's point of view is, uh, no, everyone gardens. And I want you to see my perspective. So I would encourage anyone to follow her. She's fabulous. And she has a, a little bit of sass, uh, sassy take <laughs> on her, on plants and, and, and people and places and fashion in the garden. I love her. I love her feed. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? One of my members just reminded me of this in a conversation this week, which is comparison is the thief of joy. And I think this is something that a lot of um, solopreneurs need to learn because we're so isolated when we work by ourselves. But it's important to remember, for me, to remember who I am, what I'm driven to contribute to the world, what my talents and gifts are, and how I can be a service to others. So when I get into that mind space of like feeling competitive or measuring myself by others' standards of perfection, that's when I begin to doubt my vision. So I stay inspired when I turn my focus away from me and shine a light on the flower farmers, florists, and pioneers in the Slow Flowers community and help them tell their story. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Gardening. My lesson to myself, and I say this all the time, is to eliminate the term or the phrase working in the garden or garden chores, because the act of gardening isn't work. It's a joyous celebration of life and nature. So I now I'm trying to say I'm heading out to the garden or I'm gardening today. It's not a chore to me, at least. It's a privilege that improves both my physical and mental well-being all year long. And in Seattle, that means even in the rain. What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? One of the things I'm most excited about is joining with others in the Slow Flowers movement to um, advocate for the elimination of the use of floral foam in our design work. Floral foam is that block of gr green brick foam that you see arrangements in sometimes. It's formaldehyde-based, it is not biodegradable, and it's not compostable. It's been around for decades. So there, we're working to uh, introduce alternative ideas, concepts, and techniques to encourage florists to stop using that product. What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? 
I wrote an essay a few years back for a compilation called Global Chorus, and it was uh, 365 voices on the future of the planet. And in that essay, I wrote what my heart says, and that is that flowers connect humans with nature and heighten our awareness of the seasons. They root us to our place on the planet. Our senses see, smell, touch, and even hear and taste botanical beauty. I believe this is a truth understood by all humans. Well, thank you so much for this deeply insightful conversation. It's definitely a topic that we hope to dive into further after this. So where can we go to continue following your work and learning from you online? Oh, thank you so much for asking. I, As I mentioned, we have all these different projects, and I finally collected them into one homepage. <laughs> so I'll make it easy. It's slowflowerssociety.com. And that is sort of the portal to all the projects I just mentioned. Perfect. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Well, I'm a storyteller, so I want to encourage you to own your story and tell it. No one can take your story away from you. It's, it's 100% yours. Own and tell your unique story and trust that you'll be able to move people in ways that no one else can. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in and thank you to our patrons for your ongoing support. To access my key takeaways and call to action suggestions deduced from each episode, as well as sometimes extensions of these conversations, join me on Patreon by going to greendreamer.com support. I also recently started Green Dreamer on YouTube. You can subscribe to it by going to greendreamer.com YouTube and do feel welcome as always to send me suggestions on topics you'd like me to explore there. Whether you're able to become a patron, share Green Dreamer with friends, or write a review of what you're enjoying in the podcast app, thank you for whatever you're able to contribute. Every little bit really helps me to be able to keep Green Dreamer going as an independent platform. So thank you so much. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer. <laughs>